You're listening to the Piper Podcast with me, Mary Nightingale. Piper is the leading specialist investor in consumer branded businesses and has spent more than 30 years funding and helping founders and entrepreneurs grow successful brands such as Bowden, Pitcher and Piano, and Maxi Muscle. Piper believes there are three critical stages of growth in a business, which it calls 7-17-70, relating to key points in a brand's growth cycle where there needs to be a step change. It could be £7 million, £17 million and £70 million in turnover, or by increasing the number of sites from 7 to 17 to 70. In these podcasts, we're going to be talking to some of the UK's most dynamic founders and entrepreneurs about the secrets of their success and how to avoid the pitfalls along the 7-17-70 journey. With me today is Cassandra Stavrou, founder of the premium popcorn business Propercorn. As the blurb says, popcorn done properly. Started on her mum's kitchen table with some unlikely tools, a cement mixer and a car spraying kit, proper corn was certainly done differently, well in the beginning at least, but it seems to have hit the spot. Proper corn has global ambitions. As Cassandra says, the journey is just beginning. Well Cassandra, it's a very catchy story, isn't it? It's a good headline grabber, the cement mixer and the spray gun, but it has to have been more complicated than that, surely. Um, yes, it has been a, um, an amazing journey, very, very fast-paced journey, but definitely not straightforward. So why popcorn in the beginning? I think to a certain extent, we're all, you know, serial armchair entrepreneurs and I'd had lots of ideas pre-popcorn. I really felt there was an opportunity to create a snack that was genuinely delicious, full of flavour, but happened to be better for, for you than what was out there on the shelves. So, you know, crisps and... And whatever else. So um felt that popcorn was a brilliant alternative. You can go to any part of the world and they understand popcorn, um, but it was about repositioning popcorn in a slightly different way. And you have managed to build uh, this extraordinary multi-million pound brand, haven't you? How have you done it? I don't think there's um, a set recipe, uh, as it were, but it's definitely a team effort. It's not just, you know, my claim. I've got a brilliant business partner, Ryan, behind us as well as an incredibly dynamic and talented group of people that have helped make it what it is today. This journey that we're discussing, the 71770 journey, um, you have already sailed well past the £7 million milestone. You're well in a way to the, the £17 million one. What's your turnover at the moment? So we're annualising between 12 and 13. And I like to describe it as we've just sort of come out of puberty. Um, so, you know, we've kind of skipped through the, the startup phase um, where it's very fast paced and very intuitive. And then you kind of come through puberty where you are figuring out who you are. You need to professionalize the business a little bit as you head into kind of SME. What does that equate to in terms of packets of popcorn? So we sell uh, roughly three million bags of popcorn a month uh, to about 10 countries across Europe. Uh, I'm very proud to say that we are now the number one premium popcorn brand in the UK and the fastest growing. So, um, And given that we're the only independent one left as well, that's something that um, in a very competitive market we're really proud of. How did it start? Because you read law at university, didn't you? You were in advertising, quite a sort of 
straightforward logical progression from there where did the deviation happen into popcorn so when I was deciding on my degree it was either fine art or law which feel quite conflicting Um, I guess I did law because as you said it is quite a secure safer degree to do and I was actually a useless law student and within my third week of university uh, was setting up club nights and not doing my degree from a very early age I've always wanted to run my own business Uh, my family are from Cyprus um, and with that comes that kind of more traditional immigrant mentality of wanting to sort of start up and run your own business my father died when I was 16 and without any pressure from anyone else I think I felt that starting my own business was the quickest way I could think of to be able to look after my family. It is often said that the death of a parent can prove a huge motivation and often very driven people you find they have lost a parent at a crucial time in their lives. That that responsibility is an interesting an interesting aspect, isn't it? That feeling that you have to step in and, and do something. Yes, it's, it, it's something that I'm really fascinated by, this kind of common uh, parallel, um, often with entrepreneurs who have gone through um, some personal bereavement. And 16, for me, was a very formative point in my life. Very instinctively, I, I thought, right, I need to step up now. And there's a level of emotional maturity that you go through when you lose someone that's, you know, very close to you. You have to survive and you often um, get less fearful of taking risks because, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I've already, to my mind, gone through probably the worst imaginable And that sort of sets you up, I think, with a different mentality moving forward. This lack of fear is something you see again and again. And often it's not about the money, the motivation. So so do you think there is an entrepreneurial type? I would never want to kind of reduce everyone to the the same characteristics. But I do think there are certain common attributes like being a risk taker, being incredibly self-motivated, there are points where you're not really accountable to anyone else and so you have to have that internal motivation to get up every day when it's a little bit you know challenging um, and to continue to push forward personal belief and confidence you you need to be prepared to back yourself almost naively so I would say there are a lot of people that told me you know you've got a law degree what are you doing, you know, starting up, selling popcorn, you know, sounds so random as well, um, that you have to really be able to dig your heels in, I think. You went into advertising when you first left university, didn't you? And how did you enjoy that? And how long did you last at that? I actually think it's really beneficial to have even, you know, one or two years in the more traditional world of work. It teaches you kind of professional etiquette and a lot of understanding of how kind of the the, the structures of a workplace is is set up Um, and I was really lucky that there were some really inspiring talented people at BBH where I used to work but uh, in the back of my mind throughout my time there I was sort of waiting for that eureka moment or however you want to coin it to sort of quit my job and, and get on with it really. Describe that eureka moment if indeed it was a moment. I'd had this idea I, I you know I thought there was a real opportunity to create this healthier snack and this was at a time where 
the healthy options felt quite bland and sterile and white packaging and then the more satisfying options invariably left you feeling guilty so had this um, clear vision of what I thought the opportunity was and then that was coupled with this uh, wonderful bit of serendipity where I went home I told my mum about the idea and she reminded me that one of the last presents my father had bought me which which I'd actually forgotten about was a popcorn machine and it was a lovely you know I'm not particularly fatalistic but it was a lovely moment sort of okay this is the one I'm going to go for and pretty much quit my job the next day really yes um I think the minute it sort of feels right the market felt right but the passion was absolutely there and that was all I needed really and you used to like making popcorn with him didn't you yes so um it's on all our packets the story you know we used to make popcorn when I was little and it's It's amazing that I sort of had independently come up with this idea, but then there was all this wonderful nostalgia and this lovely present um, that reinforced me to kind of go for the pursue this idea versus, you know, maybe the others that I'd had along the way. So you had other ideas before that. What sort of ideas did you have? Well, there was a frozen yogurt company called Yeti, which never got off the ground. There was an events business, um, a dating app, but they really never went past back of an envelope business plan stage. But you knew you wanted to do something. Absolutely. All right. So you had this eureka moment, if you like. So how did you then go about bringing that to reality? Being a young girl with no proven track record, um, the world of manufacturing, particularly seven, eight years ago, tended to be run by sort of big burly men in industrial estates up and down the country. And it was really difficult to get someone to take me seriously. I got lots and lots of doors shut in my face. And I moved back home and I really wanted to create impact of flavour, not just normal popcorn that you could find. And so I thought, well, I need a way of tumbling on the seasoning. So I got a cement mixer and I remember watching Top Gear and uh, the way that they spray paint cars is the finest mist that you can get. And so I remember ordering online a car spraying kit and and it was very rough and ready, um, you know, uh, throwing the popcorn into a cement mixer, then spraying on the oil and tumbling in the seasonings. And I didn't realise there was sort of this mist of oil that came out the back of the the kit and the entire downstairs of the house was covered in this film of oil. <laughs> so much so that my mum had to get the house repainted. Um, so, you know, there was a real uh, dedication to getting to the, the perfect final recipe. There wasn't um, a linear path that you take it's about getting all the various parts of the business going at the same time so from how to set up the trademark and get the company registered starting to design and build the brand uh, sort out the supply chain and find the right manufacturer and you have to just sort of start those different parts moving at the same time and you know fast forward to today um, yes there's a sort of shiny big factory but the principles are still the same. We didn't do focus groups or anything particularly formal. It was friends and family uh, probably kind of boring them to death with, can you just try this one? Can you just try this one? What about this one? And then also very lucky that I guess I'm the end consumer. So I was able to sort of just, do I like it? Would I buy this? How much would I be prepared to pay for it? And I think that really does help. You talked about 
the difficulties of being a young woman trying to get taken seriously. I really, I, I would like to hear a little bit more about that. Because how, how difficult was it, do you think, to be a woman, in particular, a young woman, trying to be taken seriously? Yeah, I think you almost um, become a little bit numb to what isn't acceptable. The amount of times I've been in a meeting and the business questions, you know, the more f- sort of formal business questions are directed to the man in the room and the more sort of um, creative questions are directed towards me. I remember actually uh, one of the distributors in a, in a different language said to the buyer, oh, you've brought um, a pretty promo girl with you to help sell the product, have you? And <laughs> was quite embarrassed when he realised I'd, I'd understood. And actually it was, you know, I was there to talk about my company. And, and there's reams and reams and reams of examples that I could give where there definitely is a different kind of treatment that you're given as a girl. If anything, it just serves to kind of fire me up even more. Is there in some way some advantage to being a, a young woman in this sector and actually possibly standing out and remembered more because of that? I think what's fantastic, particularly today, is that the recognition and the advocacy of women in business is becoming something that is being spoken about m- more than ever before. And that's brilliant because it really does pave the way for other you know, young girls to sort of aspire. But for me, I'd much rather that the success was recognised as more gender blind, that I wasn't seen as a successful woman in business, but more just a successful person. I'm, I'm going to read you something that you, that uh, a quote, a Cassandra quote. <laughs> um, you said, starting your own business might sound full of glamour and adventure, but the reality for most is far from that. It can be massively lonely. Do you remember feeling lonely? at the beginning? Yes, particularly in those first couple of years when I was trying to get the business off the ground. One of the best bits of advice I was ever given is, you know, you you don't need to do this on your own. You've got, you you know, there's no point to prove here. And and a very good friend of mine, Ryan, um, was at a point in his career where he was looking to get involved in something and had always been very supportive and interested in the idea. And um, we decided to work together informally at the beginning and it just it just worked, really complemented each other. We were able to bring different things to the business. And, um, you know, one of the best decisions I ever made was um, bringing that sort of co-founder on board. I have so much respect for people that do it on their own because it's incredibly hard. Is everything better by having a partner, do you think? I think so, you know, it it doesn't come without complications, you know, it's still a relationship that you need to manage through brilliant communication and trust and absolute shared vision. You're sharing the load and uh, you can go out there and champion the brand and push the business twice as fast. How does the responsibility divide between the two of you? Do you instinctively know which one of you should do a particular aspect of the business or do you do everything together or how does it work? I think in the first sort of startup phase of the business it was a little bit more muddled. I think that's quite typical. You're kind of both running around like headless chickens doing everything, you know, salespeople one day trying to sort of agree the business plan another day, being creative another day. So uh, we were sort of in the thick of it together as the business matures we are explicitly defining our roles 
more and more. And I would say that Ryan is an amazing sales force and has incredible energy and drive and ambition. Um, and then I'm more on the uh, sort of brand product side of things. But we both love the commercial strategy. We do come together. We've had to work really hard at keeping our relationship positive and productive because you know there's a lot of stress on both of you and a huge amount of pressure and um, I've heard lots and lots of horror stories of co-founders falling out and it, you know, it's, it's not plain sailing. You're listening to the Piper podcast with me Mary Nightingale talking to the founder of Propercorn, Cassandra Stavrou. To return to this theme that we're talking about of 71770, the road to your first 7 million Describe that. How long did that take? Our first customer was Google, which was an amazing first account to get because, you know, internationally recognised brand. And they, I don't know if you've ever been to Google offices. It's a real treat. So they, I mean, there's a sushi bar and a rotisserie and and God knows what else. And and they free issue all these snacks and proper corn very quickly was their fastest moving out of 47 different snacks that they had available and that was an from a business perspective that was an amazing first you need someone to take a little bit of a punt on you because often people want to see some kind of evidence of how successfully you will sell Um, but then you also need to be able to satisfy minimum order quantities and it's very typical this sort of chicken and egg particularly with product-led businesses. And so we were really grateful to be able to get a really healthy-sized first order with an account like Google that gave us that first step on the ladder, I guess. So we were able to take that to the rest of the industry who look to Google as a bit of an expert in terms of you know their, their, the way that they sort of service their employees. And from there, we, you know, we then uh, very quickly started to get major retailers like Waitrose and Tesco's. I think what is unique to kind of the way that we approached it, it was really multi-channel distribution. So it wasn't just focusing on the big grocers. It was also, you know, anywhere that you see a packet of crisps, we wanted to be there. So from travel to pubs to contract catering, whatever it may be, we were kind of following every single channel. I've done a bit of research and, and my local sandwich shop where I work in, in Grayson Road, yep, there they are. And uh, pretty much everywhere that you would expect to see a packet of crisps, you find proper corn. And, and the, the branding is very distinctive. How did you decide how it was to look? It was a a real priority from day one that if you think about, you know, when you go into a supermarket, as an example, there are 300 odd different snacks, nuts, crisps, whatever. And um, you really do have a split second to catch someone's eye and say, pick me. (laughs) Um, And um, so, you know, getting that, getting the packaging right is so critical, but also that it feels kind of authentic to what the brand's about and what you're trying to achieve. And so, um, you know, as I said, I saved about £10,000 and I decided to spend 6000 of that with a packaging designer, a very talented packaging designer. And relative to the amount of money that I'd, ma- I'd managed to save, it was a huge sum for me. And, you know, he did, for all intents and purposes, a, a great job. It looked good. And it's very hard to put my finger on what about it wasn't quite right, but, right, but they just didn't feel authentic. 
there's this idea of, you know, what's called sunk cost fallacy, where, you know, because you've invested time and money into something, you feel like you should continue in that in that direction. Actually, sometimes you have to be brave enough to uh, be more dedicated to the right end result rather than just the one that you've kind of committed to. And so decided to yeah, draw it myself uh, on PowerPoint, had a friend who was an illustrator who sort of did the illustrations at the bottom. And then we cobbled it together and it was imperfect, but it felt more right on that, on that, on that kind of gut uh, level. And so, um, yeah, it, it worked. And, and it's, you know, our, our brand identity has always been something that we've really been known for. It's about putting creativity at the heart of everything. And a good example is our, our cardboard boxes. So when you get a first listing, you know, let's say, you know, Waitrose, here's three, you know, 300 stores, you, know, you, th- you think, amazing, let's sort of toast the, the, the you know, the, the listing. And actually the, the reality is that compliance is such a big challenge that those, of those 300 stores, you may only make it onto sort of the shelves of 50. And what happens a lot is that you get lost in a sea of cardboard in the back storeroom and the guy who is loading the shelves forgets about you. And so we decided that, you know, let's not just have a uh, a brown cardboard box. A proper case should be colourful and illustrative and stand out in a sea of cardboard. And um, as a result, our compliance shot up overnight because we weren't forgotten about anymore. And um, it just shows how creativity can, you know, it's, it's not just the fluff. It's about commercial success through creativity and overcoming challenges through creativity. And that's something that I'm personally very passionate about. What about the, the tagline, popcorn done properly? Why properly? Why was that so important? Proper for us has always been kind of central to the idea of, you know, what we're about. But it's not that stiff upper lip uh, English sense of the word properness you know for us proper is about uh, being thoughtful uh, caring about the detail being as personal as possible Uh, an example is when we first started we used to do um, you know sample send outs as you you as you would expect but every single sample would go with a handwritten note from a person to a person and you know fast forward to today you know seven eight years later and we still send every single sample out with a handwritten note from a person to a person and those little extra bits of detail and attention make a difference I think there's a lot of mistrust with the big institutions the establishment the big corporations people sometimes distrust big business for no other reason other than, than it is big yes exactly and um it's understandable how we have got to that point, but for companies to succeed in this environment, I think it's increasingly important that they sort of dismantle some of that faceless blueprint ways of working and be as authentic, as personal as possible. So, you know, it's, it's that word again, it's authenticity, it's being personal. And I think um, in order to succeed in this environment, it's really important to have that approach. So if you have to have that authenticity, how visible do you have to be as you and Ryan, as the founders of the brand? Because you do seem to put your personality into it. How important is that, that you're almost personally reliable personally culpable I suppose it's sort of a yes and a no answer in that 
internally I think it's important it's important that the team have a clear sight of this is the vision this is why we're you know we're selling popcorn every day this is why we're doing what we're doing um you know we're not saving lives so why should they care and what is it all about I think for the end consumer I think it would be um arrogant for me to assume that anyone buys proper corn from you know Tesco's meal deal because they have any kind of vague notion of my story it's about offering a fantastic product at the right price um, that satisfies what they're looking for but the personality helps uh, us make kind of I guess more authentic and, and interesting decisions so maybe we're a little bit braver in the way that we approach our packaging design or our our approach to innovation or we you know we inject our personality probably more into the the product and the brand. We're talking about this uh, set of numbers the 71770 that we discussed at the beginning you have already passed the 7 million mark you are well on your way to 17 million with your 12 million pound turnover. What have been the biggest challenges The people bit is the hardest bit to get right, both in the recruitment, the retention, the right people being in the business at the right time as well. So an example is when you start, you're all you know, very entrepreneurial, it's probably a little bit more chaotic, a lot less sort of structure and formal sort of process. And but that's really what's required. And then as as you know, we've discussed, you go through to this sort of more adolescent phase where you do need a little bit more um, structure. And um, that's not right for everyone. And it's certainly not always right for the people that were there for that first chapter. So um, has the makeup of the business changed? And have you lost people along the way? Yes, we have. And, and if I'm honest, particularly in the first few years, something that we were really proud of saying is, you know, we've, we've never lost anyone. And look at our retention. Isn't it, isn't it wonderful? Look how strong our culture is. And then you sort of you have your first two or three levers. And it's, um, you know, you take that a bit personally. And, you know, oh, God, have we got something wrong? Or why do they not want to stay? And actually, what we've learned is that saying goodbye to people for whatever reason doesn't have to always be so sort of negative and 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 so personal actually it may be right for them to start their next chapter um we've had quite a few people go on to start their own businesses and um i think it's really important that businesses are comfortable with that because someone uh not thriving within their role can be damaging for the person but also for the company and the culture so just facing up to it quickly and honestly I think is really important. When you grow it doesn't just happen does it? How did you go about getting funding for the growth? At what point did you have to get investors involved? The real sort of more formal point of fundraising came about a year ago where we brought both Piper and Jamjar into our business. So and Piper, who Jamjar? Uh, Jamjar um, are the ex-innocent uh, founders. Um, so have built a relationship with them from you know before 
we even launched and um, Richard Reed was very generous with his time and then uh, post the investment Adam Ballon is now our chairman and you know couldn't be luckier to have such a proficient um, chairman and someone who's really has been there done that got the t-shirt with innocence so really able to sort of call on that experience. But what beyond uh, the money does does getting private equity involved I mean what does actually Piper bring to the party yeah. beyond the cash? Well you know, the visibility of the brand meant that when we decided to raise um, some funds, we were lucky enough to be courted by some, you know, brilliant people across the board um, in all shapes and sizes. And the reason we decided to go with Piper was firstly, their portfolio of brands are real kind of consumer brands. They understand brand equity, they understand the importance of nurturing that equity and that culture in an organisation and not just wanting to kind of strip it all out for the sake of a financial target. Secondly, we'd sort of built a a close relationship with them. You know, I was personally excited to have another um, woman on the board, but also there's that real trust and that shared vision. If we're going to go after the opportunity that's ahead, that we're on, they're on this together. And, um, you know, introducing structures like board meetings can seem uh, quite unappealing. Um, It's, you know, more formality into your business. But in fact, it's afforded us that sort of monthly marker in the sand. Are we doing what we said we were going to do? How's the business performing? What can we all do to really get there? Um, and Piper in particular have got some fantastic networks and sort of experiences that they're able to kind of call on to. Have there been compromises that you've had to make by getting private equity involved? The filter before even bringing someone on board was are we going after the same end goal and so um, with that shared goal there shouldn't be it shouldn't be about compromising but it is about maybe holding each other all to account and um, what I think I am trying to get to how difficult is it to maintain the identity of the business when you have all these outsiders who yes who have got involved how much does that change in reality your basic business so once you you know bring private equity into your business and you know um it becomes ever more important to sort of fight for that culture and protect it and i I say fight it's you know we're not fighting against anyone to protect the culture but retaining what we were all about in the beginning becomes so important and so critical and you have to keep you know you have to have that list of values that really clear articulate vision you were talking about the pressure of competition on your brand and on your business but I also read something that you'd said about competition being great and actually you love having other products pressing in on you in the in the sector it it's a good thing explain that so firstly we have a rule at propercorn which is that you are never to talk negatively about your competition you know both internally and to retailers um it's it's really important that we have that attitude in place i think it doesn't serve anyone when i had the idea to reposition popcorn you know away from cinemas away from traditional kind of film association healthier alternative to crisps a few months before we launched two kind of major competitors entered the market and I remember so vividly being mortified and going home and telling my mum you know 
it's over they've done it you know not the first anymore and um, actually it was the best thing that could have happened because what that does you know little you with your tiny marketing budget and you know team of two it's an uphill battle to really sort of change consumer behavior grow a category on your own whereas if you have competition it put popcorn on the agenda it made major retailers look at the category in a different way and then it's our job to make sure that we're the best Talk to me about uh, the expansion. You're already in 11 countries in Europe. The next stage, presumably, is to go truly global. How how does that work? And how difficult has it been to introduce the product into different countries? 80% of what we're working with in terms of, you know, healthy snacking, a more health-conscious consumer, you know, those sorts of trends truly are global. But there are nuances that exist across different countries and and, and territories. So the way that we snack in the UK with a typical you know, pack of crisps and a sandwich is very different in somewhere like Germany or Holland where they may have like a hot meal and the idea of crisps at lunchtime is, is, is quite unusual. What we've really had to do is never to be so arrogant as to assume, right, you know, what we did here worked. Let's just sort of ship it overseas and it'll do the same there. You know, you really have to make sure that you understand your end consumer work closely with the distributors and the retailers to make sure that you're tailoring your offering to each market the holy grail mm. presumably is going to the united states which is a little bit like selling snow to the eskimos i guess isn't yeah it? um is is there room for more popcorn in the united it, states it, it, you think? it feels a little bit like that um if i'm honest you know the penetration in the u.s is up at 90 percent versus here in the UK, which is, you know, only 40%. So if we're going to succeed in markets like the US or, you know, Asia, it's about being able to really offer something different. So presumably you have to travel quite a lot nowadays. Do you enjoy the travel aspect of it? Um, I've never been very good at traveling. I'm sort of, you know, very last minute and I sort of try and time my traveling so that I'm at in the airport for as little time as possible and if I'm there for too long I'm sort of frustrated so I'm definitely not one to sort of dish out any kind of travel tips. I did notice though that while flying I often had some of my most productive um, work in that I was able to think strategically and think creatively and I noticed it's because you know you you don't have wi-fi even though They are starting to annoyingly introduce Wi-Fi on planes, but, you know, you don't have Wi-Fi, you're free from interruption, you you know, your inbox is silent. It's so rare that you have that opportunity, and it was as a result of that that I introduced this concept of power hour, whereby, you know, you put your phone away in your pedestal, you you physically switch your Wi-Fi off, Um, you have a sort of rule of no interruption and you just allow yourself the freedom to think creatively and be able to think about some of those meteor items on your to-do list. So this is something you've adopted right through the business, is it? The power hour? Yes. Everyone has to do it. Yes, we we were really disciplined um, and we've kind of lost our way a little bit. So actually this has reminded me I'm going to go back tomorrow and and reinstate it. So um, here you are. Uh, running this very successful business I'm wondering what does success feel like do you feel successful even 
my sort of quick answer is um you know no we I definitely feel like we're really at the starting line here you know there's so much more to go after and I think we've been moving so quickly as well we're not very good at pausing and recognizing maybe some of the achievements it's something we probably should do a better job of but um my mum is proud and I was able to get my first you know mortgage and, and put, put a deposit down on a house this year that felt really tangible that probably felt like the first sort of moment of something but you know day to day we're sort of just cracking on with the business we've got so much to go after you are so uh, positive and it is such a, a positive story but it can't have all been like that there must have been dark moments along the way so when the going gets tough what what keeps you going Ryan and I being able to lean on each other is so valuable to both of us um, I would also say, you know, we're so clear on that end goal. Well, what are we trying to get to? That really kind of keeps you going. And then also a brilliant team. You know, they're very motivating. And that's why bringing the right people into the business is so important. But have you ever had doubts? Have there ever been times when you possibly felt that you lost your way or even considered quitting ever? Uh, starting and running a business always felt like the easier option than um, working for someone else, which may sound mad to to some people. But So definitely not quitting, but there's of course been moments of doubt and some really challenging times. um, And you have to get well-practiced in kind of pushing them, pushing them away. And rightly or wrongly, you know, it's important to sort of be a leader and 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 stay positive and, and motivate and focus for your team but that doesn't mean you have to be a robot so you have this very well-defined product which is obviously popular is successful and so but how is it going to evolve we're definitely not short of ideas or ambition um and so actually sometimes our biggest challenge is just picking sort of the two or three priorities but uh, i would say that uh, in terms of international expansion you know we're going to be going after new markets um from a product perspective we definitely feel like we can move beyond popcorn so what other proper healthy snacks can we bring to market our ambitions are really to be kind of a global healthier snacking brand and and, and more than popcorn uh, we've recently just launched our kids brand as well uh, so something that that we were repeatedly asked for by parents is you know when are you going to bring a kids option to market and so we've uh, launched proper corn for kids which is um, less sugar less salt under 100 calories in line with you know the new public health recommendations from the government so uh, very, very excited to see how that goes this is a predictable question but if you were going to give your younger self some advice now looking back benefit of hindsight and all of that or, or indeed any other entrepreneur starting out now what would be that one crucial piece of advice do you think what I think is fantastic when you uh, look around today is that never has there been so much advocacy of entrepreneurialism. And I think I read a stat recently that 70% of young millennials 
want to be entrepreneurs and you know the age of freelancers and, and, and it's a great time to start a business there's more access to finance and support and advice and startup books and websites and forums and networks than ever before which is brilliant but you can get lost in that world and I, my my one bit of advice would be just crack on and do it um, you know the idea and the perfecting of the plan is only 10% of it and it really is about getting up every day blagging it maybe to a certain extent but just cracking on just keep working at it yeah what would your dad make of what you've achieved do you think um, I, I honestly would love nothing more than to be able to see him and, and share and, and show him what you know we've achieved um, you know that would obviously be incredibly special but I am comforted by the fact that um, I'm definitely my father's daughter and it's some of his uh, traits and characteristics that have allowed me to be a bit more fearless and go after this so I'm grateful for that. Mm, he would be proud I, I, thank I'm you. sure. <laughs> thank well, you. Cassandra Stavrou, such a pleasure to meet you, thank you for talking to me. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Piper Podcast with me, Mary Nightingale. Next time, I'll be talking to Alex Riley, founder of the phenomenally successful lounges and cosy club cafe bar chain. How's he taken it from zero to over 100 sites? I hope you'll join me then. <laughs>